from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome back for another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Our host for this show is Rabbi Michael Bayo, CEO of the East Valley JCC. Hi, Rabbi. How are you, Adrian? I'm very well, thank you. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Our guest is Richard Casper, President and Chief Executive Officer for the Jewish Community Foundation of Greater Phoenix. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There's a lot on our minds, and I would just love as we begin this conversation, primarily between you and the rabbi, for you to give us a bit of an overview of yourself, your organization, your work. And I think that will open up a lot of what there is to talk about, about how we've all adapted, uh, what the past holds for the present, for the future, and all of those things. So could you give us just a brief introduction to what you do, who you serve, and how you go about it? Sure. Um, Maybe I'll start with myself and then talk about the organization a little bit. Um, I uh, I am the CEO of the Jewish Community Foundation of Greater Phoenix. I've been in that role for the last seven years. Um, I've been part of the Phoenix Jewish community for about 30 years, and most of that time I was a lawyer in private practice, serving um, at different times on half a dozen different boards in the community, mostly in the Jewish community, but not exclusively. And then, like I said, seven years ago, um, I made the leap and left private practice and um began working full-time in philanthropy at the Jewish Community Foundation. The foundation itself has been around uh, for going on 50 years. We were established in 1972 by the Jewish Federation of Greater Phoenix. And at that time, we were the uh, we were called the Endowment Fund. Um, and um, for lack of a better way to describe it, I think what happened back then was the Federation uh, received some unexpected bequests and maybe some real estate and decided to set it aside for uh, the purpose of creating an endowment that would be more future looking rather than meeting immediate needs, but would be invested and the hope was that it would grow and over time they'd be able to make distributions from that uh, asset to support the Jewish community. Since then, um, the Jewish Community Foundation has become an independent organization uh, going back to about 2002 And our focus is primarily um, on the local Jewish community, um, building endowments and other financial services. But, um, you know, people often think of us as a financial organization um, and describe us that way often. You know, the first question that people always seem to ask is, how much money do you have, you know, in assets under management? And that's an important question. The answer today is about 65 million. But um, I'm always resistant to that description of us as a financial organization. I think we are better understood as a service organization um, in existence to serve the local Jewish community and its organizations and its uh, its people and their interests and the money that we have at our disposal that we raise and distribute is just one of the tools that we use to do that. Rich, uh, thank you very much for being here with us. Uh, you know, I, I still remember the first time I met you about five years ago when uh, you came to my office and 
I had no idea who you were and what you do or what I was supposed to do. But uh, since then, we developed a very, uh, I think, for, at least for my part, a wonderful uh, professional uh, relationship as well as a, a true friendship. Uh, so, uh, and, and I need to say publicly that uh, the Jewish Community Foundation has been one of the uh, biggest supporters of the East Valley JCC, uh, for sure, since I have been here, and hopefully this will continue um, with the work that we do and the partnerships that we have. So again, thank you very much for all you do. I think it's undoubtedly true that you are one, you're seen at least, maybe you don't feel, but you're seen as one of the most important leaders of the Jewish community. Um, and it's interesting because uh, for those who know you, you are, you know, you're, you, you always seem, you know, very, you know, on the quieter side, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, but you're definitely seen, at least in my eyes, as one of the major leaders of the Jewish community. Um, tell me, talk to me about that. <laughs> what are the pros and cons? So, and, and what does he do for you as a person? I mean, I know that to me, when people talk to me, oh, you're the rabbi, the rabbi. Yes, I have an ego and rabbis have big egos. And anybody that looks for a position and gets the position to be a CEO of an organization means that, yes, so we do have egos. But then when I go home and I am between me, myself and I, I sometimes I'm like, wow, like all of these people, they, they look at me and I am a nobody. I'm nothing. I like, I can barely <laughs> do what they think I can do. <laughs> well, I'll start by saying, I know your wife. So I, I understand exactly where she's coming from <laughs> and what you just said about <laughs> what you just said about your, your home life doesn't surprise me a bit, but uh, that's not to diminish anything that you do in public. Um, as far as my role and all of that, I mean, look, yes, of course, there's some ego involved. Who doesn't have a little bit of that? Right. Um, yeah. But that isn't that isn't what made me make the, the move into Jewish philanthropy. And it isn't what drives me every day. Um, what I will go back to is something, you know, about six months after I started working for the Jewish Community Foundation, maybe, you know, the middle of 2014. I was interviewed by the Jewish News, um, which then was a completely independent publication. Since then, the, the publication was donated and is now owned by the Jewish Community Foundation. But back then, it was under separate ownership. And they wanted to do a profile on me as the new CEO in the foundation. I had been there for about six months, settled in. And uh, one of the things that I said in that interview was that I... Uh, was I still had not had my first bad day on the job. And I always go back to that uh, because now seven years later, um, I still feel like I haven't had my first bad day on the job. And some of that may be the perspective of someone who practiced law for more than 20 years, where, um, you know, frequently it was the reverse formula. You're waiting for a good day. <laughs> um, but but I genuinely feel that way about the work that I do. I am, uh, it's really a position of privilege uh, to be able to, to work with so many really inspirational individuals in the community and to have a, um, a platform and a position that we work from where we get to look out over the entire community and um, 
you know, when we're doing it right, we're solving problems, we're anticipating problems for the community and getting out ahead of them. Um, and whether it is through grant making and, you know, injecting funds where they need to be so that people like you and other uh, organizations in the community can get something done, or if it is just in, um, you know, the matchmaking that we get to do between sometimes organizations and other donors, other funders, um, or just people that need to know each other because they ought to be working together, you know. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a rare thing for anybody to have in their community to be able to do that kind of thing. Um, and you know, I, I'm not a Pollyanna. It's not that every moment of every day is great, but I still literally have never at the end of the day felt like, you know, this was a rough day. I got beat up today. Um, I've had, you know, I've had my share of detractors. Everybody does. Um, I won't say that I've never dealt with a difficult situation, whether it was a lay leader uh, that wasn't happy with something that we had done, um, a donor, uh, you know, um, I've had my share of difficult conversations, but they they always seem to end well. And, and, and that's what I enjoy about it is, you know, the, the, I'm in a position where we can sit down and we can talk and we can hash out our differences. And um, in the end, what we know is that whatever it is we're doing, we're all doing it because we're trying to uh, enhance and improve the same Jewish community. And so we can come together on that. And, and, and in the end, it's, you know, one of the things that is satisfying is there are times, you know, I've, I won't get into the details, but I've had a couple of people chew me out now and then, and it doesn't bother me because it's an opportunity to hear from them. And in the end, what I've enjoyed the most is turning those uh, situations around where we become collaborators and friends and and we can support one another because we get to understand each other better. Thank you. You know, I definitely feel a sense that um, of privilege, absolutely, to be able to to lead the Israeli JCC is is probably one of the best things that happens in my life on on a daily basis, and I look forward to go to work every day, uh, and 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 I try to stay as humble as 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 I can be. Uh, because of this huge, uh, both responsibility and joy that I have in leading this organization. And, and as you say, and this is where I think uh, we have a very strong common denominator, is to ultimately to do good for the community and, uh, um, and work for the community, which I think brings you joy and brings me joy. But we also know that the community is not always united. And our community, just like many other Jewish communities around the country or around the world, mm -hmm. is not a unified community where it's always uh, kumbaya. Do you think that this uh, tough year will maybe be able to open conversations that we were not able to have in the past and maybe find additional common denominators among various elements of the community so that then we can do better together? Well, I don't know. Um, you know, we're speculating, of course, but I guess the, the best answer I can give you is that I hope so. Um, what I think, uh, 
one of the things that I think has come out of the last um, nine or 10 months now is that a lot of organizations in our community have seen um, in a very graphic and frightening way how fragile they are and um, and how little it can take to completely upend everything that they thought, <clears throat> pardon me, everything that they thought was working so well. And so, you know, people have short memories sometimes. Um, and, you know, we're hearing that there's a vaccine on the horizon and <clears throat> everyone is optimistic that, you know, maybe by the middle of next year, we will be returning to something that feels more like what we used to call normal. Um, when things go that way, you know, it's possible that we will, that a lot will be forgotten that, that we, uh, that we've experienced. I hope not. Um, I think because of what we've seen, because of the need that organizations have faced to adapt quickly, um, to do more with less. I'm hoping that what we will see come out of it is a greater um, desire on the parts of a number of our organizations to, uh, to collaborate, whether it is in small ways on projects or even in big ways where we uh, you know, may see organizations, um, for lack of a better term, maybe merging uh, and, and finding different ways to work together to serve the community better, um, recognizing that they need to be stronger. Um, yeah, because this has been one crisis. It's probably not going to be the last crisis our community faces. Yeah. Rich, if you could give us a sense of in before times, as my wife refers to everything, right. you, know, <laughs> you know, last year and backwards, uh, a kind of a, a, a typical year in the life as you would look at a variety of different projects and organizations and kind of what it looked like, what what you were funding and supporting and, and kind of what was happening out there in the community. Obviously, there, the 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 brutal kind of ending of so many of those public facing programs has dominated the landscape, not just for nonprofits, but for businesses and schools and everybody. So give us a little sense of the impact here. And as you look then to the future, this is a huge question. You're going to have to forgive me. As you look to the future of what these learnings might change about how you'd like to see things done differently, kind of walk us through that. What was it like before? A little bit about what happened. And then where this could go. Okay, you're right. That's huge. Um, you know, in the past, we had what now feels like the luxury of being able to focus on, you know, uh, when it comes to grant making in particular, which is, I think, what you were asking about, we were focused on um, supporting organizations so that they could bring new and vital programs into the community uh, to strengthen and support a Jewish community into the future, um, bring more people in. You know, one of the things that we've learned in the last couple of years, we've always suspected it, but with the thanks to um, to ASU and the population study that they completed about a year ago, is that there is a tremendous number uh, out there, a large uh, of people who identify as Jewish in one way or another that our community simply is not reaching. 
Um, some of them don't want to be reached, and, 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 and that's their prerogative. But there are a lot of them that, that would like to be reached. They just don't know we're here, and we haven't figured out how to get to them. So a lot of attention in the past has been placed on doing that. Um, good programs coming out of it, good success, growing the community, all of that nice stuff. Um, and at the same time, through the foundation, we, we put a lot of energy and resources into working with the local uh, community to, to build up their financial resources, programs focused on endowment building, how to do it, um, and, and why you need to do it so that you can better face a crisis when it comes. Uh, and, and, and those were terrific. But, you know, in the last 10 months, what we're looking now at is more crisis management. Um, we've had a couple of rounds of emergency grant funding because we've seen in the community two different kinds of emergencies facing our, our organizations. One is, um, the social service kind of emergency. Some of that, uh, has been addressed by the East Valley JCC. But uh, there are tremendous new demands being placed on organizations for social services of one kind or another, um, whether it is assistance in, in paying your bills or getting food on the table or job placement. Um, there's a huge new demand, and those organizations that, that have as part of their mission responding to those demands need resources. So we've been trying to shore that up where we can. But the other side of it is many organizations are in our community. They're hurting themselves, um, even if they are not in the business of responding directly to that demand. They may be, um, you know, it might we might be talking about a synagogue or uh, an educational organization or something. And many of them, many of them are looking at a situation where they haven't been able to fundraise. They're not having their events the way they used to. Uh, they're not able to interact with their donors. And so our concern is that when this period ends, we want them to be able to become fully functioning the way they used to be. We want to make sure they come out of this crisis as strong as they can without having to lay off employees, without having to cut back on programs and services. And so we're also busy trying to shore them up um, to keep them stronger because we know that those are the touch points in the community that 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 make a community. So it's it, we've had a, a big shift in our outlook um, and what we consider planning for the future. At this point in the conversation, we're joined by Marty Haberer, who couldn't be with us from the beginning due to technical difficulties. I asked him to give us an introduction to himself and his organization before we continued the conversation. I'm Marty Haberer, and I'm the president and CEO of the Jewish Federation here in Greater Phoenix. Um, I'm completing my fourth year in that role. Uh, I've been in town six years. I came here as the chief development officer in uh, 2015. Um, And my entire working career has essentially been uh, in non-for-profit Jewish communal service, uh, beginning out of New York where I grew up and... uh, ultimately uh, making moves as jobs required to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, Detroit, Michigan, Sarasota, Florida, and then ultimately uh, here. Um, and it's, it's been a passion. Uh, the Jewish Federation system is about 120 years old. There's some debate as to whether Boston or Cincinnati is the older of the two, but uh, it's been around a long time. And in fact, uh, in Phoenix, which is a relatively newer community, 
Uh, we are about to enter our 80th anniversary as a formal Jewish organization uh, in this town. It's a great privilege to be doing this work. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously it's the type of work where uh, no matter what you do, it's never enough. And uh, this year with uh, COVID-19 and all the ramifications, uh, it has certainly uh, made the work more complex, more challenging, but the need even greater, uh, only augmenting and reminding me why I came into this uh, to help develop and grow Jewish community and to serve needs, uh, both in the Jewish community and for the general community. Thank you, Marty, for joining us. Um, uh, you know, the Federation of the Federation has been a great supporter of the East Valley JCC um, in, in the past and, and, and currently, and also specifically during COVID, uh, we have been the recipient of a number of emergency grants from the Federation for which we are very grateful that allow us to do the work on the ground that we actually do. Marty, I would like to know from your perspective, what's going to be the new normal? post-COVID. Uh, I know that uh, prophecy is not something that uh, was given to me, uh, uh, maybe to you, uh, but please tell us from your perspective, because you have a different perspective than I have. You see and understand uh, and interact with probably a, a number of agencies on a, on a regular basis. Uh, you see what's going on. So what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to see some agency needing to close? Maybe others are going to merge. Um, and also, where is, uh, what do you think are there going to be the patterns of uh, charitable giving? So again, like you, I am not a prophet, uh, although I do sometimes play one on TV. I, I would say from my perspective, and I spend probably too much time thinking about these things, um, I think that the condition of Jewish communities, not just Phoenix, but in general in North America, um, have been uh, changing anyway before this crisis. And I, and I think what the, what the pandemic did was it probably sped up and fast forward a change that was going to happen anyway, probably in five, six, seven or eight years. And I think it's going to be on our doorstep. It is already on our doorstep now. And it'll just speed up what would have taken maybe another, you know, half decade or decade. Um, and it'll happen in the next couple of years. And, uh, you know, what, what I've seen is it has caused a lot of people to rethink what's important to them, the balance in their life, whether it's work family balance. Uh, uh, and I think philanthropically, it's, it's, it's caused them to really sit back. And, and there are people who I will call reflexive givers who maybe have been giving to the same organization year after year, and this jolted them to rethink about how they were going to distribute their dollars. And I think that's going to continue. Now, uh, as Shakespeare once said, uh, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. I'm not going to judge whether it's good or it's bad, but I will say that anybody that is in the philanthropic space, Jewish or otherwise, that isn't considering these changes is asleep behind the wheel and is going to get really surprised uh, you know, as, as things come up. I, I think uh, our Jewish community, I think our Jewish Federation, I think my colleague Rich and I and others have done a good job collaborating, cooperating with you, Michael, with the, as you say, with organizations with boots on the ground. But at the same time, I think um, I don't think we've even begun to see. I, I think we've been able to scrape by this year. But I think next year you're really going to see the impact of the change, because some people think that maybe this was just a one time shift in people's giving, um, in their lifestyles. And, and I don't think so. I, I think there will be some people who will bounce back, but I think there's a good many 
of people. And that's not just in their philanthropic habits, right? I, I'll give you an example of myself. I, I was a, um, uh, a deeply addicted Starbucks drinker. Uh, started drinking Starbucks in Cincinnati in 1997, and you can do the math. Here we are in 2020, and when you add up the amount of money that I spent on Starbucks, no wonder Starbucks is Starbucks. But I stopped doing it and uh, when the pandemic hit, and it broke a habit, and I've not gone back to it, and it is not my intention to go back to it because I, it woke me up to realize how much money I was wasting at Starbucks, and I've been able to do a lot of other things with that money. Um, similarly, dry cleaning. You know, I haven't had to go to dry cleaners. I've changed the way that I wear my clothes. Obviously, Zoom, the fact that we're doing this podcast and each one of us is in our own space to do that. Normally, this would have been in a studio or you would have come to my office and those behaviors are not going to change. So I, I really do believe that you can either be afraid of what this is going to look like um, in another six months or a year, or you can embrace it. And, and Rich and I uh, have had many conversations and our leadership as well about the condition of our organizations and the Jewish community. And I agree with you, Michael, you alluded to it. I, I do think you're going to see certain historic organizations that are going to have to change. They're either going to go away in some cases, there's going to be mergers, and they're going to be leaner. Now, again, is that good or bad? I don't know. Um, you know, again, from my vantage point, synagogues, I mean, it's got to be awfully rough to be a synagogue or a church these days uh, when you rely on people coming through your doors and nobody's coming through your doors that often. So, um I think you can either get excited by the change or you could panic and freeze. And I hope that, you know, we choose to embrace and keep an eye on the data and the analytics. We know that people need help. We know that uh, the needs that have historically been uh, addressed by the Jewish Federation, by the Jewish Community Foundation and other organizations are going to continue to be there. So somebody's going to have to pick it up and figure out how to meet those needs. You know, it, the Israeli GCC is a strange uh position because on the one hand we are a small JCC on the other hand uh, we are the largest Jewish organization in the East Valley and the East Valley is a huge geographical area and we cover it all or we try to uh, we do a lot of programs both pre-COVID and post-COVID um, and at the same time we're also I believe the, the third largest Jewish organization in town so we are both the smallest, you know, one of the smallest JCC in the country, but one of the largest organizations. And we, I think, are very, very good with being able to do a lot with a with, with a small budget. And I don't, and I think, and I agree with you that a lot of other organizations are going to need to to adjust into that. I'm an expert. Anybody wants to advise on how to do that? Come to me. I'll tell them how to do that. But I would like to ask a different question, and to both of you. Uh, Pre-COVID, one of the strategic thinking that we were doing in our organization was to do a capital expansion. And uh, if you ask me today, no way. No way. I am not going to do a capital expansion in any time in the near future. Because I'd rather use whatever funds we have to either help the community with additional programs or to rethink programming in a different way. Meaning, I don't think that I need to have people coming into my building in order to provide a meaningful program. 
And therefore, not necessarily uh, do I have that need anymore to expand my building because we can bring the JCC to multiple places outside of the building. Do you see that kind of thinking in other organizations um, in town? Who would you like to tackle that first? Uh, Rich. Okay. Well, yes. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of what uh, a lot of what you just said. I've heard coming from other organizations as well, and it's not surprising um, if there is a silver lining to what we've been living with. It it is some of what you just described, right? That we've found new ways to deliver services, to interact with one another, to support the community. But I'm going to push back on that, too, because um, as, as well as many organizations, including yours, have done, people are craving an opportunity to interact personally. And, um, and I think as soon as people start to feel comfortable, that it is safe to do so, there's going to be a tremendous demand for in-person programming uh, in the same way that as soon as it is safe for people to begin traveling again, going on vacations and staying in nice hotels and, uh, and, uh, and doing all those things, they're going to do it. They miss it. Um, we are social creatures as human beings. And as nice as it is to be able to do what we're doing today, to look at each other on a screen, and to speak to one another, it, it doesn't compare to the benefits that people get from interacting personally. You know, one of the things that I've noticed that I miss um, is, is just is just that. You know, when I when I go to events in the community, one of the big benefits of going has nothing to do with the program that's being offered. It's being in that room with those people and interacting with them and forming new relationships or friendships um, or um, or advancing and changing other relationships that already exist. And it's the same thing, for example, when we talk, you know, a lot of times there are professional conferences um, that we all attend in uh, across the country. And Frequently, what I, you know, what I see there is the content of the conference isn't always what drives me to go. It's who else is going to be there. It's interacting with the people that I can learn from and, um, and building those relationships. So on the one hand, yes, I think you're right. There's going to be a lot more of the uh, remote programming being offered, and it's going to be good as far as the content goes. But I think you are going to see more people coming to you saying, we want both. We no, want I agree be, with you uh, 100%. I know that, for example, my teachings, and as you guys know, I do a lot of teachings during the week. I can't compare the quality of the teachings in person or the ones that I currently do on Zoom. Uh, I, and I know that as soon as we can get back together to uh, with my class and my students to learn together, we will do that. What I meant was, or from an organizational point of view, rather than spend millions of dollars on a capital uh, expansion, go and rent a space for the event rather than, I, I think that in the past there was this concept, this idea that, oh no, we need to expand, we, it's, we would X organization to invest in our physical expansion. Right. And I think that today maybe the, the idea could be 
No, we are going to get together, but I don't need to spend millions of dollars to do a capital expansion. I can just rent a, the ballroom in the hotel to do that event. That was right. my thought. But uh, Marty, what do you think? So, you know, in the, in the uh, famous words of Forrest Gump, I think it's a little bit of both. And, and, and I think you're seeing it not just in the uh, Jewish communal uh, non-for-profit space, but, you know, look at the condition of, uh, you know, strip malls and shopping malls and things of that nature. I, I think what you're going to see, I mean, poor New York City, right? So uh, there, there's more uh, vacant commercial real estate right now than there has been in New York City since uh, 9-11. And I, and I think uh, in all these places, including our spaces, uh, you're, you're going to see a, uh, a very, very thorough relook at the use of space and what's necessary and what's not necessary, what's cost effective and what's not cost effective. I think, uh, for instance, in our own Paradise uh, Valley Mall here, you're seeing massive change. Sears closed. I mean, that's unbelievable, right? And then in that space, Whole Foods is moving into the Sears. That's going on right now. These are, these are interesting moves and maneuvers, and I think that mall is going to move towards some combined uh, residential real estate with some shopping. It's going to be different. So let's take that approach to our own uh, physicality as a Jewish communal not-for-profit uh, uh, organization. I think you're going to see a reevaluation of space needs, uh, productive use of space. I think even COVID causes us to relook at offices versus cubes and things of that nature. Uh, all these things have to be relooked at, uh, and they're not necessarily going to be inexpensive. Um, uh, it, it takes money to get out of leases, to get into leases, and to redo space. It's also interesting to me, and I don't know if you three share the same thing. I, like many Americans, have also taken a whole new look at my own house. Uh, I you know, worked so much and was out of the house so much, I never took the time to really stare at my house and see what the, where the cracks were and what was missing and what was broken. Now, with all this time and, and all this time spent at home, I've noticed those things, and I've really poured a considerable amount of, you know, again, Starbucks money uh, and cleaning money and going out to dinner money into doing pretty significant re uh, renovations in my own living space, not always to expand, but certainly to modernize and to practicalize that space. And so I think... Uh, you know, to Rich's point and to your point, Michael, you're always going to need, you can't completely divest yourself of real estate. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to continue in the 1960s, 70s, 80s version of the uh, edifice complex, not Oedipus, but edifice complex, where the Jewish community needed bigger congregations, bigger campuses, 32 acres this. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's about size, but I do think multi-purpose spaces and you know, we need to look at and really reconsider. And I'm, I'm not suggesting we do or we don't, but the whole idea, and I know you go through this where you are versus where we are here, you know, do we need gyms in, in JCCs? That's an interesting debate that I know is going on system-wide in the JCC movement. Uh, you know, there's plenty of uh, alternative places where you can get great equipment and work out, but some people believe that you do need to have a, a central place. So there's no easy answer to these things. I do think it's going to be fascinating. I know that on, 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 on the space that we sit here, a considerable amount of money, time, and attention has, put, has been put into making sure we have sensors in our bathrooms and you don't have to touch things. And I think we're better equipped than many doctor's offices that I go to where you still have to turn the handles of the bathroom or flush the toilet with your hand. So these are all considerations, and I believe consumers notice those things. I know I do. I feel a lot better when I can stick my hand under a sink and not have to turn a knob. I, I actually appreciate an organization that has gone to that kind of trouble. 
So there's three strands of this conversation. I'd love to see if we can pull together. And, you know, I'm the sort of adjacent anthropologist in the mix here. And I'm curious for the three of you leading the organizations that you do, if we could talk a little bit about something Rich alluded to earlier, which is the changing demographics of the Jewish community here in the Valley, but more generally as well. Uh, some of those shifts. Uh, and, and then now this this opportunity to rethink the way you structure programs and facilities and 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 the way you connect and serve those people. And then the third strand, of course, is the charitable giving and the philanthropy, the endowments, the the donor overseed funds, et cetera. How do you how do you bring these all together? If we take Marty's suggestion to look at this agnostically as a potential opportunity, not just as something terrible that happened, the worst year of our lives and so on, maybe not the worst year ever. There's been worse years. Um, but how could you then thinking forward, what, what are some of the opportunities that you see now for reaching different dimensions of the community with different ways of connecting with them and then bringing the, that funding dimension in? What are some of the unique ways this could turn out that we haven't seen before? If we don't just return to the way we always have done it, we use this as a way to rethink, rebuild, et cetera. What's on your mind? Um, Rabbi Bale, let's start with you, and then we'll just kind of work our way around. What What are you thinking about right now with regard to those three things? I'm not sure that I have uh, complete answers. Uh, I think that, uh, at least for me, I'm still very much in the in the brainstorming uh, uh, thought process. But I do, uh, there are a number of uh, realizations or, 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 or conclusions that I have come, that uh, me and my leadership have come. Cash is king. And uh, we, thank God, are doing well. Uh, and that is because over the years, we learned to do a lot with little. And so did this crisis hurt us? Absolutely, yes. We lost a lot of money, both uh, directly and indirectly. But we're going to be around. We are, we are okay compared to other organizations that maybe... Did different choices when it comes to fundraising uh you know my fiscal year is a little bit different than others because it's not a calendar year so i go from august to july and what i am seeing right now is that we are doing okay for this year i am seeing a number of new donors I'm seeing a number of older donors that maybe are scaling down a little bit, but others have scaled up. So I don't have a, a final answer yet. I don't know what's going to be. I have no idea how I'm going to end my fiscal year or I have no idea how I'm going to what next year is going to be. Right now, I really don't know. But I what do, do know as far as we're concerned is that cash is king. You need to be nimble and humble and pivot every day when it comes to programming you know right now we're still in covid everybody's doing zoom programs 
So yes, I could attract uh, people from all over the country to come to my programs, but also my, the people that used to come to my programs don't have a need to come to my programs because they can go to anywhere else in the in the in the world, right? So so we need to come up with programs that are unique that only we offer in order to retain that connections. We are doing hundreds of phone calls a day just to maintain what was a physical connection. I think that those are small steps in order to create longer impacts that are so important. And if we're going to make mistakes, I want those mistakes to be as quick as possible so that we can pivot as quickly as possible. That's my one cent answer. <laughs> Rich, what are you seeing about how changing demographics in the community, uh, responding to different programming opportunities and the changing nature of funding? What do you, what do you see there as the future? Well, I, I don't, again, I, I said this before, we're all speculating, uh, but one of the things that I think uh, is changing um, a lot is when you talk about cash is king, it's um, revenue models are going to, they need to change. Um, and and this crisis has really put a shine to bright light on that issue. For the last, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so, it's been very popular to talk about nonprofit organizations as businesses and that they should be running like businesses. Um, and the fact of the matter is they are businesses, but they are different than for-profit businesses. Um, but we have often applauded organizations and encouraged them to turn away to a great extent from philanthropy and focus on fee-for-service models. And we, we've been applauding those organizations, right, that, that are bringing in revenue because people want to pay for it. And, and we congratulate them and, uh, as what wonderful uh, successes they are in that regard. And one of the things that we've seen is many of the organizations in our community that are struggling the most right now are the ones that have be become most dependent on that model. Because it turns out when people um, can't receive those services, they often are not inclined to pay for them. And, um, and so I think we probably need to um, return you know, maybe not swing the pendulum all the way back to where it used to be, but to find a, a healthier midpoint um, with a renewed emphasis, not just for the organizations, but for the community on philanthropy, because um, philanthropy needs to be there even when the services can't be in order to sustain those organizations. Um, when you can't have those, you know, when you're depending on people walking through the door uh you know, uh, because, you know, to drop their kids off for a preschool program or uh, for a day camp or something like that. And you can't offer those services anymore. You still have to pay the bills. You want to keep your you want to keep your employees on the payroll as long as you possibly can. Right. To support them. You've got to pay uh, for your facilities. All of those things don't go away. So. I think there's going to there, there really does need to be a reexamination of how we fund our organizations in the community. Um, you really see that, I think, in the synagogues, the ones that are that have been hurting the most or have had to do the most work to get through this are the ones that have relied on 
heavily on the preschool, for example, to fund the rest of the congregation. And the ones that don't have, that have the smaller facilities maybe, and that don't have the fee-for-service um, revenue model have gotten through a little bit better. Um, in this case, it's because wealthier donors are actually doing just fine right now because the market has been kind of extraordinary and you know wealthier people are invested and they have the means to be contributing for the most part so i think that's one thing the other thing and this really i don't know if it's if the i don't think the pandemic has necessarily um refocused us on this but the you mentioned the changing demographics um, as Jewish organizations and as a Jewish community, we've spent the last, well, my entire lifetime, as far as I can remember, fretting about what is the future of the Jewish community going to be? Who is it going to be? Are our children going to raise Jewish children and have Jewish families? And um, the fact of the matter is Jewish families look different now than they did 50 years ago. Um there are a lot more people that identify as gay or as uh, people of color who also identify as Jewish in a very public way and want to embrace a Jewish community that embraces them back. And um, there's certainly plenty of growth opportunity <laughs> there um, for us to, to do that. There, That's a big demand that I think, I will say, I think the Phoenix Jewish community has not done a very good job. Uh, of outreach and embracing um, Jews who want to be part of the Jewish community, but are not necessarily the mirror image of the Jewish families that many of us grew up in. So, you know, that's another thing. I don't think the pandemic has, has is the reason that has changed, but maybe it has caused us uh, to speed up <laughs> our, our desire to respond to that demand. We've got just a couple of minutes left. Marty, we'll give you the last word on this. Changing demographics, funding, programming. You've mentioned several things already, but what are your thoughts on the future? So I think Rich was really heading at the very end there where I was going to go, and that is that I do believe the demographics are changing rapidly. They were changing before COVID. COVID puts a magnifier on them. I believe, uh, you know, for instance, interfaith, couples, right? So there's, you know, and that's, again, you can judge whether that's good or bad. Some people would tell you what a terrible thing that is. Other people tell you how, what a natural American thing assimilation is. And so, uh, you know, as, as Rich pointed out, I, I don't think we do a particularly good job in the emerging gay community. I think we do an equally lousy job in the interfaith couple trying to uh, bring value to interfaith couples, uh, in, in terms of wanting to be involved in the Jewish community, making them feel welcome, providing meaningful, impactful programming. And I think, uh, as you mentioned, as we head to the last word on it, uh, I really do think it requires our organizations to relook at our mission statements. I, th I think this is a great opportunity to rebrand ourselves. I mean, one of the things I think about is today, I'd like my Jewish organization to be an engine for collaborative Jewish engagement, an engine for collaborative Jewish engagement. And, um, you know, People just look and feel and think differently than they did 20 years ago. Uh, you know, there's a whole different way to be. Uh, and we just have to be caught up with that. We can't live in the 1950s, 60s or 70s because they're over. We may glorify them. We may love the Beatles. But guess what? Uh, you know, there's a, there, there's some new rock and roll out there today. And we have to be listening to those tunes and uh, be aware of what people are listening to. Rabbi, you've spoken on this show and will continue to do so in future episodes about your own personal 
journey uh, from an ultra-Orthodox upbringing through your rabbinical training, through the many different places you've lived in the United States to where you are now. As we wrap up the show, you've just heard Rich and Marty talk about some of those challenges and some of those gaps. What do you see needs to happen to address these concerns, inclusivity, outreach, and so on? I think that um, the reality is, as Marty said, it doesn't matter whether we like it or don't like it. The reality is, for example, at my JCC, that uh, the majority, the overwhelming majority of uh, our Jewish families are interfaith families. That's our reality. And I embrace that reality. And I welcome that reality because that is our reality. And if we want those families to be connected with our center, with our community in general, with uh, the various Jewish organizations, we need to first of all understand that we are not the jury and the judge of what is right when it comes to how somebody chooses to express their Judaism. Everybody, uh, Judaism as, you know, they we say that Judaism has a 613 mitzvot uh, commandments. And I can assure you that I don't perform all of them. Some of them I don't perform even willingly. Okay. Bad Jew. And, you know, so we perform some, we perform others, we pick and choose. We all pick and choose how to express our Judaism. And yes, my uh, Jewish journey has taught me that I am not the judge nor the jury on how somebody chooses to express their Judaism. And uh, uh, what I can do is to give a platform on how different people can express their Judaism. And however they choose to express it, I want to be there to help them in that journey. And so, yes, I welcome, as uh, Marty said, a browner community, a gayer community. Um, um, yes, all of that. And the more is the, the better, maybe, so that then we can be a better community. Rabbi Michael Beo is CEO of the East Valley JCC. Joined for this conversation by Rich Casper, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Jewish Community Foundation of Greater Phoenix, and Marty Haberer, President and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Phoenix. Thanks to all of you for this rich and interesting conversation. Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at phx.fm, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next Conversation with the Rabbi.